It is a pleasure to be with you all as we're continuing in this series called The Gospel at Work. And I think it's only right that before we dive into what God's Word has to say to us this morning, that we take a moment to allow Him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks that you are indeed the giver of every good gift. That you're the one who gives us our callings, our vocations. And so, Lord, as we are wrestling with how to live those callings out well, we ask that you would indeed give us wisdom. That this morning you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we were getting ready uh, to uh, to really to prepare for this message, uh, one of the things that we found, uh, one of the examples that Pastor Mark found actually was of a study that talked about lost hiker deja vu. Uh, lost hiker deja vu is what you often see in a lot of these adventure films in which somebody is walking out in the wilderness and suddenly they realize that they're going in circles. It's that moment when uh, they think that they're getting close to their destination only to come upon their own tracks in the snow. And while that's a really great Hollywood device, what this particular institute, it's called the Max Planck Institute for Biological Cybernetics, what they found is that this is actually a real thing. That it's actually quite common for human beings, when they're out of their element, when they're in a place that they're not familiar with, to get lost. And so what they ended up doing is they wanted to figure out, well, why is that? What is it about us as human beings that causes us to do that? So they uh, had a couple of scenarios where they put different teams of people in different uh, outdoors environments, and they kind of see how they did navigating their way around. And this is what they found. They found that those teams of people that had a fixed point by which they could navigate did just fine finding their way out of unfamiliar situations. If they could clearly see the sun or navigate by the moon, or they had a map or a compass, they did great, even if they'd never really been in that place before. But what they also found was that if you removed those uh, markers, if you removed those familiar signs by which they could navigate, almost invariably what they would end up doing is walking in circles. And the reason why is because subconsciously we as humans are looking for something familiar to guide us. And so we end up kind of backtracking and, and looking for something that we understand. And it gives us this feeling that we're on the right track until we come across our own footprints in the sand. We find that we're walking in circles. Now I appreciate that Mark shared this with us because I think that this actually says a lot about how many people navigate the workplace today about how many people try to discover their calling, whether that's their calling professionally or personally, I think many of us have lost hiker deja vu. And here's what I mean. When you look at the U.S. Bureau of Statistics, what they find is that the average employee turnover rate in this country annually is 12 to 15 percent. That means 12 to 15 percent of our workforce in the next 12 months is going to change jobs. That causes a lot of disruption, as you can imagine, in many businesses and companies and organizations. But it gets even more stark when you start looking at the younger generations of the workforce that are coming up today. Gallup recently did a, uh, a survey, and they published part of it in an article called Millennials, the Job Hopping Generation. And this is what they found about the millennial generation, my generation. 
They found that millennials are uh, 60% of millennials in the workforce today are open to new job opportunities. What it, that means is they basically said that if a better job comes along, I am ready to leave this one. 60% of millennials saying if I get a better job offer tomorrow, I'm taking it. But then here, but then it gets even more interesting. They found that 21% of millennials changed jobs within the past year. And only 29% say that they are engaged at work. Now what they mean when it says 29% are uh, engaged at work, what that means is it's not that they don't show up or they don't work hard. They do show up, they do work hard, but they don't feel a kind of emotional attachment to the job they're doing. They have no, they have, uh, no idea if their job is even making a difference. They have no real motivating reason for getting out of bed other than that this helps me pay the bills or advance my career. Now, what's interesting is that Gallup also noted that these trends aren't just indicative of millennials, that many uh, people in Gen Z also are kind of showing these same kinds of trends. And they say it's not really about pointing fingers at a particular generation. What this is showing is that there's actually a crisis in the workplace. What it highlights is that if this younger generation doesn't feel connected to their work, it's because the older generation that's currently running these organizations and businesses isn't giving them a deeper meaning for their work, isn't helping them understand how what they do actually matters, not just to their company, but to their clients, not just to their organization, but to those that they serve. Gallup says that this generational trend is showing us that there is a crisis in the workplace. And that for many of us, regardless of what generation we're in, this is how we often go about our careers. We basically walk in circles. We leave one job looking, uh, going to another job, hoping that that job is going to give us some sense of fulfillment, that that job is really going to help us grow or prosper or thrive. And when it doesn't, we just move on to the next job. We're searching for something familiar, something to navigate by, but we find that position after position, calling after calling, just doesn't seem to fulfill us. It's as though we're perpetually in this loop, trying to navigate in a world that's confusing. And what we saw in week two of this series is that this is part of the reality of our world, right? It's because of our selfishness that we basically broke the good world that God has entrusted to us. And it's part of the reason why in our workplaces and in our jobs and in our callings, we often feel like the work that we do is fruitless, frustrating, and pointless. But the question is, so how do we find meaning and how do we navigate in a world like that? How do we find something that's truly lasting? How do we find a calling that will actually connect us to something deeper? What do we look to as our guidepost? That's really what we're going to be talking about this morning. Especially as we look at what Scripture has to say, because what Scripture has to say about how we navigate through this seemingly fruitless, frustrating, and pointless world is quite profound. Because what Scripture says is it actually says it's not the job that's the problem. It says there's something else actually that's lacking. And the thing that scripture says is lacking is wisdom. Listen to this passage from James chapter 3. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, I don't know about you, that actually sounds like a great description of the TV show The Office, except a little less funny. And I think for many of us, we would look at our workplaces as places filled with jealousy and politics, with backbiting and the rat race, and we would say, that actually kind of feels like work to me. That feels like Monday through Friday. Or maybe, maybe if you're a stay-at-home parent, that feels like every single day when I'm trapped in that house with those kids. Jealousy and evil ambition, little demonic things running around screaming for stuff all the time. And what James is saying, though, and I just love this, is he's saying, look, it's not, it's not the circumstances or even the job necessarily. What's lacking is wisdom. He says, if you want to learn how to navigate through a world that, yeah, has challenges, through workplaces that, yeah, are complicated and difficult, what you require is a level of insight that goes beyond simply skills acquisition. And actually, um, I was reading a book called Every Good Endeavor, and and in in that book, Tim Keller, the author, says that wisdom is especially important for Christians as we think about our jobs because wisdom acts like a compass. It helps us to navigate our way through these challenging situations. And he says, specifically, there are three ways in which you acquire wisdom. The first is through personal experience. The second is through self-knowledge. And the third is through having a personal relationship with God. And I want to kind of look at each one of these in turn because I think that we're going to see that actually this call to wisdom is, is pretty wise. First thing that Tim Keller says you need is you need personal experience. Personal experience becomes the way by which you acquire wisdom. And I think that that's actually part of the problem with many in the workforce today. And again, I'm going to kind of speak for my generation just to start. Okay, let's talk about those millennials for just a second. One of the things that you have to realize about us as millennials is that growing up, we got trophies for everything, even when we didn't do well. And I actually remember one little league season where, like, we lost almost every single game. And we got to the kind of the end of the season pizza party, and guess what they started doing? They started handing out trophies. Everybody on the team got a trophy. And I remember sitting there, like, getting my trophy and being like, why are we getting trophies? We didn't win a single game. We are terrible at Little League. And I mean, unless the trophy said, this is for being awesome at being terrible, like we shouldn't have gotten a trophy for anything. And yet I think it's no surprise that that many millennials, you know, we come to the workplace and, and so what have we been taught? We've been taught simply by showing up, we should get recognition. I hear a lot of people griping about millennials in the workplace, all they're lazy, they want recognition. Look, we were raised by boomers, so you made us, Okay. We are your Frankenstein's monster, okay? But, but it, honestly, like, we show up, and, and what do we care about? Advancement. What do we care about? Recognition, promotion, getting that larger paycheck. Is it any wonder? And that's part of the reason why I think millennials jump from job to job without ever actually acquiring wisdom. But what if, what if for just a second, and I'm speaking to kind of the younger generation, people more my age now. What if you entered the workplace and said, you know, what if this isn't so much about me receiving recognition as it is so much about me learning to grow? What if I saw my workplace as a place of learning? 
A place where I could be forged and shaped into a better worker, a better team player, a better leader. Because honestly, I remember that little league season when we, everybody got a trophy, how dissatisfying that was. But I also remember two seasons later where we won the championship. And the difference between that trophy and the trophy I got at the end of our terrible season was I knew that that trophy was earned because of hard work and us learning together. And I think if we really want to have satisfaction, we need to approach our work with the idea of gaining personal experience so that we might be forged into wise people. Now let me talk to the older generation for a second, those of you who are overseeing us for just a moment. It is up to you to pass on that kind of work ethic. We are looking to you and the wisdom that you have acquired to pass it down and to teach us. Because one of the other interesting things that many of these organizations that are doing studies on the workplace has found is that millennials and the generations that are younger than them are more open to mentors and mentoring than any other generation prior. We love mentors. We love it when people speak into our lives. And I actually had this moment when I first joined staff here. Right? And I, I had my first, like, sit-down meeting with my supervisor, which this is Mark, by the way, okay? Sat down with Mark, and Mark is just like, so how do you think about the job? I was like, I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Um, there's some things that you could help me with, though. And he's like, yeah, like what? And he's like, well, when I used to work in college ministry, I would meet monthly with my supervisor to check in, to talk a little bit about how I'm doing, what I'm learning, and where I'm stuck. And I was wondering if we could do that. And Mark kind of sat back in his chair and he's just like, yeah, I don't really know how to do that. I've never had anybody do that. And honestly, for me, I, I, if I was in your position when I was younger, like a, a boss checking in with me, that would have been like weird and kind of insulting. But here's why. He was putting his finger on something for boomers. The only time you get feedback from your boss is when you've done something wrong. Whereas millennials and those who are younger, we feel like if we're not getting feedback from our bosses, then something is wrong. We want feedback from our bosses. We want to know if we're doing well or not because we see that as an opportunity to learn and to grow. What if you as managers and bosses, people who run your own companies, stepped into your workplaces or you as, as parents raising your kids saw your homes or your office spaces as places to forge people in wisdom, to pass on experience so that they might grow? How would the world be different? This is actually something that many business leaders are picking up on in his book, So Good That They Can't Ignore You. Cal Newport says this. He says, if you want to love what you do, let me say it again. If you want to love what you do, abandon the passion mindset that says, what can the world offer me? And instead, adopt a craftsman mindset that says, what can I offer the world? To step into our workplace and say, I want to learn something so that I have something to offer. I want to step into my workplace so that I can get better at what I do, so that I can be a better team player, a better leader, a better contributor. First way you acquire wisdom is through personal experience. The second way we acquire wisdom is through self-knowledge. Self-knowledge. One of the things that often gets people burned out in the workplace or causes them to be let go is not that they don't have the right skills, but that they lack the character. It's not because you don't know how to do your job. You do know how to do your job. You just don't do it. Or you do it in ways that only serve you. Or do it at the expense of the team. Or do it at the expense of your customers and your clients. 
Oftentimes, the reason people is fired is not because they don't know what to do. It's because of who they are as a person, because they have certain blind spots and weaknesses, shortcomings and character flaws, which get in the way of them doing the best that they can possibly do. I think this is just part of the reason why Jane Austen said that self-knowledge is the first step in maturity. And part of gaining wisdom means that we have to honestly be able to take a look at ourselves and say, yes, these are my strengths and what I can do well, but these are my weaknesses and shortcomings. And learning to actually ask for help in doing them. One of the things that I love is in that passage from James, how James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What he's saying is he's saying true wisdom is humble. True wisdom is open to feedback. Because the only way in which you really gain self-knowledge is if you have people who are able to speak into your life. Who can help you identify your blind spots and your shortcomings. This is part of the reason why we at Trinity talk about accountability, by the way. It's why it's one of our seven values. It's one of the values that almost everybody, when they do our spiritual life assessment, says that they're poor in and don't want. Like, I don't want accountability. That's uncomfortable. I don't want people telling me about myself. But listen, that accountability is being given so that you might grow. The only way you will grow in self-knowledge is if you have people who are in your life, who with love and grace can tell you the truth. What if we approached our callings and our vocations in out of a desire to grow in our self-knowledge by inviting others to help us and to teach us, to identify our blind spots and to help us go deeper? So whether you're a boss or an employee, a parent or a child, a teacher or a student, you're saying, I desire to get better, to know more, to get honest feedback, what if, our, what if your annual evaluation wasn't just about did you meet your benchmarks and your numbers, but was also about helping the person across the table from you grow as a leader, grow as a team player, and to support them in flourishing in that way? What if you actually entered into your annual review not simply saying, hey, look, I, made my, I, I hit my targets, but are there ways that I could be better serving you and our team? How would that change the workplace? That desire for wisdom and self-knowledge. But the third thing, third way, and I would say one of the most essential ways, the most essential way to grow in wisdom and to acquire wisdom is having a personal relationship with God. And here's why I say that. In his book, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life, Tim Keller says the following about wisdom. Pay attention to this. He says, Wisdom is making the right choice even when there are no clear moral laws telling you explicitly what to do. Wisdom is making the right choice when there are uh, no clear moral laws telling you explicitly what to do. Some decisions require only knowledge, like the proper medicine to take. And some require only compliance with the rules, like whether to commit adultery or not. But no Bible verse will tell you exactly whom to marry or which job to take, whether to move or to stay put. You see, if God had given us a 100-volume set of rules for every situation, we would have relied on the book and our diligence. But when we see what wisdom truly is, we will be driven to look to Jesus, the one of whom it was said, what's this wisdom that has been given to him? The only way that you truly become wise is by spending time with wise people. 
And what Keller is saying here is he's saying the wisest person who ever lived is Jesus Christ, who in every single circumstance, even in moments when people were trying to morally trip him up and catch him in something, exhibited a profound wisdom and insight. And the reason why is because he is the God who made us. The one who wrote the laws into the fabric of the universe. If anybody knows how to navigate this world, it's him. And what Keller is saying is he's saying you ultimately need to look to the one who is wisdom itself. Because it's as you look to Jesus that you learn what true wisdom is all about. That's why we read that passage from Colossians chapter 3 earlier on, where it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, in the ancient times, when you did something in the name of a person, it means that you did things the way that person did them. That when you were sent on behalf of a person or sent in their name, it meant that you not only had their authority, but that you had a responsibility to do it the way that they would do it if they were actually there. And what Colossians is saying is he's saying, look, if you want to be wise, you need to look to Jesus. And you need to consider everything you do, every calling and vocation that you have through the lens of what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? See, when I was growing up in, in high school, there was this craze. It was the WWJD bracelet craze. How many of you remember the WWJD bracelets? Yeah, a whole bunch of us. Now, I was not a Christian at the time. And I saw all my friends like going around with these WWJD bracelets. And I was like, what does that even mean? And they're like, well, that means what would Jesus do? And I was like, that's ridiculous. And here's why I thought it was ridiculous. Not because the question seemed ridiculous, but because I saw a whole bunch of people in my school wearing these wristbands who were terrible students. They didn't do their homework. They didn't listen to their teachers. They weren't really good friends. They were kind of self-centered. And I was just like, that's ridiculous because you guys obviously don't believe it. You put it on your wrists, but it doesn't affect your life. But, but the truth is, as I've gotten older, and as I've really started to look at what Scripture says, what would Jesus do is the right question. It's actually the perfect question for Christians to ask, but Jesus doesn't want it on your wrist. He wants it written on your heart. He wants us to consider how would he do what we're doing. If he was doing my job today, how would Jesus do that job? How would he treat the people that he's talking to? What quality, what quality of work would he produce? How would he engage with his bosses and supervisors? How would he parent his kids? How would he treat his spouse? What would Jesus do? And the answer that scripture gives about what would Jesus do is that he would serve and would lay down his life for those who are around him. I love how Mark 10, 45, when Jesus talks about his purpose, he says this. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That means that whatever calling or vocation we have, we step into it asking the question, how can I serve someone today? How can I, by my work, bring blessing to another person in the quality of what I produce and in the interactions that I have? 
And this is something that business leaders are even starting to pick up on. Pat Lencioni, if you guys are not familiar with Pat, Pat is one of the leading leadership experts in the world. You look at any leadership magazine or blog, you are going to find them quoting Pat at some point. And what Patrick Lencioni says in one of his most recent books, The Advantage, is he says this, every organization must contribute in some way to a better world for some group of people. Because if it doesn't, it will and should go out of business. Every organization must contribute in some way to a better world. What he's essentially saying is every organization should ask itself the question, how can we serve our world in what we do? He says, and if you can't answer that question, your organization shouldn't exist. He's saying the healthiest organizations that I've ever worked with, the best organizations, the ones that people love to work at and people love to be clients of are the ones that can answer that deeper question of why do we exist for the blessing of others? Well, how does what we do connected to a deeper purpose and reason for being? I love the fact that even leading business thinkers are pointing back to this idea that we are called to be servants as God himself is a servant. In seminary, I read this amazing book by a guy named Roland Bainton. He's a, he's a leading scholar in Reformation studies, and he was writing about how Luther rediscovered what it means to work as a Christian. And this is what he says. It's a long quote, but it's worth listening to. He said, God has called men to labor because he labors. God works at common occupations. God is a tailor who makes for the deer a coat that will last for a thousand years. He is a shoemaker also who provides boots that the deer will not outlive. God is the best cook because the heat of the sun supplies all the heat there is for cooking. God is a butler who sets a feast for the sparrows and spends on them annually more than the total revenue of the king of France. God continues his labors through human instruments. The lowlier the task, the better. The milkmaid and the carter of manure are doing a work more pleasing to God than the psalm singing of a Carthusian. See, what Bainton says that Luther rediscovered is that the way God blesses his creation is by working through the hands of the people he's made. That God delights in joining us in every mundane task because when we approach our work with wisdom, we see that every task can be transformed into something that serves another person. Even the most mundane job suddenly has a newfound dignity because it's connected to the ways in which God is serving the world. And when we approach our jobs in this way and we approach our households in this way, it changes everything. What I love about how Paul goes on in that passage from Colossians, he says the way that you start, the place that this begins, is in your most fundamental vocations. It begins in your households. It begins in your marriages and with your children and with your parents and then moves on to your bosses and your employees. This is why he writes, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants obey everything. Those who are your earthly, ma um, 
Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart and masters. Treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He says it begins, the way you put this into practice is in your most basic vocations. As spouse, as parent, as child. And moving outward from there to as a boss and as an employee. Because when you start to operate that way and you put that into practice, it does transform everything about how we view work. It helps us to realize that the person who picks up your trash is just as important as the investment banker. Because think about this for a second. If that garbage man doesn't show up on your street every single week, what becomes of our communities and our neighborhoods? Places riddled with disease and human filth. It's because they get up in the morning and take out the trash that our communities are the wonderful places that they are to live. That is a dignified and holy calling. And I wish more often people would run out to the curb when that garbage truck comes by with notes of thanksgiving and praise, with gifts and accolades for the person who every single week drives that route. When we start to approach work this way, it actually helps us to see that the person who stocks the shelves in the grocery store is just as important as the CEO. It's by them getting up and doing their job that we have food on our tables, food that we actually didn't have to work for to grow. Fresh produce that's there and that's checked regularly so that we can eat well and eat healthily. That is a job with great dignity. It allows us, to, it helps us to see that the stay-at-home parent is just as important as the parent who goes back to work because they are raising the next generation and forging character within their homes. This is what it means to approach our work with wisdom. It's an outflow of understanding the grace God has given to us, that he has served us abundantly and richly at great cost to himself, that he was willing to enter our world to serve us, ultimately to lay down his life for us so that we might have life. And he says, just as I have done for you, now I call you to do for others. Join me in the work that I do. That's what it means to see the gospel at work. That's what it means to begin every task with the Lord. It's to recognize that in knowing him, we understand what it truly means to be wise. And that wisdom is displayed in meekness as we serve others. It's in the name of Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve, that we say, Amen.